BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. We begin in Silicon Valley, where Facebook is under fire this morning. The Federal Trade Commission and more than 40 states, including California, have accused the social media giant of illegally squashing competition by operating as a monopoly. KQED's Rachel Myro has more. The suit alleges Facebook squashed its fiercest rivals by gobbling them up, Instagram in 2012 and WhatsApp in 2014. Prosecutors want Facebook forced to unwind those deals and an injunction to stop Facebook from engaging in future deals. The multi-state lawsuit was filed in coordination with the FTC, which has filed a separate complaint. California's attorney general issued a statement saying innovation in Silicon Valley and elsewhere depends on a fair and competitive marketplace. Facebook's response to the legal attacks? Quote, the government now wants a do-over, sending a chilling warning to American business that no sale is ever final. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro in Menlo Park. In Sacramento, lawmakers have introduced the Garment Worker Protection Act. The bill seeks to prevent exploitation of garment workers with a special focus on preventing wage theft. Advocates say there are almost 50,000 garment workers in L.A. County alone. And the pandemic has made their poor working conditions even worse because of ongoing issues like bad ventilation and cramped workspaces. But it's also put renewed focus on the industry, says Marissa Nuncio, director of the Garment Worker Center Advocacy Group. Garment workers have been sort of elevated in the public eye to essential workers because they're making masks, they're making uh, protective equipment like medical gowns, um, but their labor standards have not been you know, elevated. A previous bill had wide support in the legislature, but didn't make it to a final vote before the last session adjourned. So here are some statistics I have been thinking a lot about lately. Latinos are almost 40 percent of California's population, and yet they make up nearly 60 percent of the state's cases of COVID-19 and half of the deaths. Recent polling shows Latinos are more concerned than any other group about how the pandemic is affecting them. KQED's Katie Orr reports. A new survey from the Public Policy Institute of California finds nearly half of Latinos worry either they or someone in their family will become sick from the coronavirus. That's higher than Asians, African-Americans, or white adults. Nearly 40% of Latinos are also very worried COVID will have a negative impact on their finances or their families, again, higher than other demographic groups. The survey also finds more than 40% of households earning less than $40,000 a year reported cutting back on food to save money. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. 
Here in the Bay Area, COVID testing is top of mind for Latino activists. In July, you might remember we took you to a pop-up testing site set up by the Latino Task Force in San Francisco. John Jacobo is the health chair there. He joins me now. And John, you know, the statistics haven't moved much all these many months later. What's your reaction to that? Um, you know, even even by highlighting some of the great things that, that our Department of Public Health and, and some of its very strong rank and file employees who I, I love and appreciate very dearly, even when we look at the, the strides that have been made, um, it is still very frustrating. Um, and it's frustrating because the outcomes are painful and the outcomes are personal. Um, we know people that are impacted, that are affected. And when we overlay statistics and numbers over it, and they run parallel to what we saw in September, or what we saw in July, what we've seen in April, it is deeply frustrating that we haven't done more to curb that. Yeah, you talked about outcomes. What about the response? I mean, you've been really at the forefront of the response in your community, in the Mission District in San Francisco. Um, You know, when we last spoke, you were talking about you had one day of testing, sometimes two on a good week if you had the resources and you were hoping to ramp that up. Where are you at now? Um, We've increased to, we now have a second site in San Francisco at Crocker Amazon, led by one of our LTF, Latino Task Force members, Excelsior Strong. So now we're technically up to two days of low barrier testing. And and for listeners, it's, you know, meaning it's same day, walk up, free access, no check for ID and results uh, within 24 hours. And so this is now our second site, which is obviously a good step, but uh, is still um, not quite where we need to be as a city. And, and I'll preface what I'm going to say by saying that in San Francisco, Latinos are 15% of the population, but we are 50% of the overall caseload of COVID-19 that has happened in the city and represent 24% of the deaths uh, in total that have happened in relation to COVID-19. These are not numbers that are new from today. They're not new from last month. They've been the same story and the same tale from April. And we've known that the Mission District in particular, where where I'm from, where I live a few blocks from um, the the 24th and and Mission BART station where we've done testing, we uh, know as of of two weeks ago uh, from a study we did with UCSF that one in every 10 Latinos that tested there tested positive for Mm COVID-19. And that continues to be the theme. So it begs the question uh, as to why more has not been done to focus here in this specific area that's been the hardest hit. And what would that look like doing more? Are we talking about, you know, seven days a week of testing? What's your ideal? What I would ideally want to see is seven day a week, low barrier testing um, operated by the city and county of San Francisco and in partnership led by the community who has proven that they can not only do this, but do this uh, targeting the audience that we want to, to have come out which is uh, our Latinos, essential workers, and people that are at highest risk. John, one of, the th- one of the issues that has been really at the forefront of your mind has been the right to recover. Tell us what that means and who should be in charge of, of paying for that. Yeah, so uh, in our first study in April, the Latino Task Force knew that it was not enough to just test, but we had to test to care. A component of that was knowing that many of our undocumented community members that may not qualify for sick pay from work or may not qualify for state or federal benefits 
would not have access to resources to be able to survive two weeks of being forced to stay home. And so we, you know, privately fundraise money and we're able to help the families that we were taking care of back in April. Um, we partnered with Supervisor Ronan here in San Francisco to create a policy that is now the law of San Francisco known as the right to recover. The one, um, the one you know, quibble I'll have with it is the funding mechanisms and sources we chose um, to fund this program. Um, and, you know, obviously I appreciate the efforts that have been put in and, and all of the efforts to keep it funded. But what we have essentially done is created a program that is fully dependent on the whims of the rich. And what that means is right now we are going to philanthropy to secure money for a program that is absolutely a health program. It, the right to recover ensures that anybody that is sick that doesn't qualify for the things I've mentioned will have monies to be able to shelter in place. And by not having that money, by not having that program, what we as a society or as a city are doing are putting people in a position to choose between being a good member of society, even if they're asymptomatic and stay home, or go out and earn money to feed their kids and their family. And I can tell you that that is not a position that I think any reasonable San Franciscan would want to be in. And so what we are pushing for is the city to reconfigure this to ensure that this is funded by the Department of Public Health, to ensure that this program has the resources it needs, uh, even at a scaled up uh, rate of infection as we're, we're seeing now, to keep us through the next year at a minimum. Because without it, we're gonna hear more stories about people that had no other choice. John Jacobo with the Latino Task Force in San Francisco, it's so good to have you back on the show. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It might be December, but the 2020 census isn't over yet. The legal fight over the count continues to play out in court. And leaders in part of L.A. are worried. The 34th Congressional District in central L.A. had the state's lowest response rate to this year's census form. Just half of the households there filled the form out on their own. KPCC's Carolyn Champlin starts us off with more on what's at stake. The 34th Congressional District includes downtown L.A. and stretches up to Eagle Rock. And when the self-response data started coming in this summer, the district's representative, Jimmy Gomez, got worried. The count was not good at all. With the numbers looking so bad, Gomez pushed local advocates to go door to door and even join them. It's true. I pushed the groups and I also I walked the walk. I never asked anybody to do anything I wouldn't do myself. In the end, with only 52% of residents filling out their census forms, the district ranked last in California. Final census data is not out yet, but Rob Santos, president-elect of the American Statistical Association, says low self-response is a red flag. So here we are in a situation that spells pretty much doom. Doom, Santos says, because this basically ensures an undercount. That's a problem for institutions that serve the central city's residents, like the Wellness Center on the L.A. County USC Medical Campus, which provides health services to low-income families. Rosa Soto runs it. When we don't have accurate data, um, it creates a huge divide between the resources available and the need. For example, her center received CARES Act money this year to educate people about COVID-19. But Soto says if forthcoming census numbers make the population seem smaller than it actually is, federal help could be harder to come by at a time when it's needed most. For the California Report, I'm Caroline Champlin in Los Angeles. 
The closure of playgrounds has been a big frustration for frazzled parents and bored kids during the pandemic. The mandate was part of the state's latest stay-at-home order. Well, after lots of criticism from moms, dads, and some lawmakers, yesterday the state announced it will reopen playgrounds at reduced capacity. So, the California report Saul Gonzalez visited a playground in L.A.'s Griffith Park. It was still mostly deserted, but Mariah Lahara was there with her five-year-old daughter Camilla and spoke to Saul. So... During the pandemic, how important is it to have access to playgrounds and parks? It's really important for the kids. Just because everything's going on, I feel like settling in a house is not good for the immune system. Coming out here to the park and having my daughter play, run around, her lungs expand is very important for me. And the parks have been, you know, the playgrounds have been closed. Has that affected her and has it affected kind of family life? Yeah, it's been very boring, but understandable. You know, we still need to go out for our children and make sure our mental health and our physical health is like at, at its top right now just because of quarantine and everything. But um, I'm glad they opened it. I didn't even know they opened it. I was just actually, I actually come here, even though it has caution tape, I come here. I'm you'll you'll, you'll go under the caution tape I and do. just use it? I do for my daughter because she wants to go out. I'm not going to have her cooped up in the house. She can't even go to school. She can't even like socialize with people. And it's sad, but I understand. Like, that's why I make sure she has a mask on, sanitize her hands, you know. And when there have been more people out, when, when the playgrounds have been open, or, or even when they're closed and other parents arrive, is there, like, an etiquette that you follow? Like, do you think the, the kids are pretty good staying apart from each other? Or do you tell oh, yeah, her, hey, don't get too close sanitizer. to other kids? Yeah, I carry hand sanitizer, and the kids that play with my kid, I make sure that we all hand sanitize, you know, we're good and stuff like that. No coughing directly at people. You know what I'm saying? Mask on. It's like you have to go by certain rules. Yeah, but it's, but it's also hard to police little kids too, you know? Yeah, it is. Most definitely it is. <laughs> you know from experience. <laughs> yeah. That was the California Report Saul Gonzalez talking with Mother Mariah Lahara at the Griffith Park Playground yesterday. As COVID cases surge, many hospitals in the Central Valley are approaching capacity. That's not the case in Mariposa County, at least not yet. But the county's health officer is warning that resources are becoming scarce for those who need critical care. Valley Public Radio's Carrie Klein has more. The John C. Fremont Healthcare District Hospital in Mariposa County has 19 beds and only one COVID-19 patient. But the hospital doesn't have an intensive care unit. That means patients in need of life support or ventilation have to be transferred to Fresno or Modesto, where ICUs were 94% full earlier this week. Here's County Health Officer Dr. Eric Sergienko. We're having patients hang out longer in our emergency department, or if we find an accepting hospital, the ambulance gets there and they're hanging out longer waiting to transfer that patient. As more patients need transfers, Sergienko worries paramedics may be in short supply. So even after a bad car accident, you could be waiting longer for an ambulance and emergency care. The techniques that a paramedic can bring to the call are an additional 20 minutes away. So, you know, even there in the pre-hospital setting, you'll see increased mortality. Sergienko says stay-at-home orders may be important, not just for reducing infections, but for reducing competition for scarce resources like ambulances. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Klein in Fresno. 
Finally this morning, a contact tracing app launches today. It notifies Californians when they come into close contact with someone who's tested positive for COVID-19. The app was developed by Apple and Google in collaboration with the state, and it uses Bluetooth to notify users if their phone has been near the phone of an infected person for 15 minutes or more. But in order to have a real impact, a lot of people need to use it, as Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff emphasized this morning. Please download uh, Notify CA, that app. I'm, I'm urging everyone to get that so we can flatten this horrible surge right now. Governor Gavin Newsom assured Californians that the app is, quote, 100 percent private, 100 percent secure and 100 percent voluntary. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, December 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Happy first night of Hanukkah, everyone. I'm Lily Jamali. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com and Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from DrinkHint.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!